Kings chapter 13. That'll be page 1786 in your pew Bible. Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Father in heaven, as we come before you this hour, we pray in our hearts that your Holy Spirit would commune with us as we worship, offer prayer and song to you, O Lord, in celebration of our lives and salvation. 
We pray, Lord, as the pastor gives out his sermon this hour, that you would give him the fortitude and the strength to project the confidence of salvation in our lives, that it would be a comfort to us who are within your grasp, Lord, but a dividing knife that would cut through the heart of the lost and bring them to themselves and the knowledge that without Christ in their life, their life is destined for destruction. Draw them to the cross, Lord. Let them look to you in all things to justify their lives as children of God. We ask also, Father, for prayer for our brother Jared, the difficulties he's experiencing with the post-operation. Give him comfort in his rest. Let his heart be stabilized. Have your hand upon him. Be with Andrea as she ministers to him as well, takes care of him. Let her be the good servant and helpmate that you have given to him. For our friend Ron, Lord, who is uh, sick and the doctors can't seem to understand what's going on, Lord, I pray for clarity for them and for comfort for Ron as, as he is trying to get through this. And for Terry as well as she's worried and concerned, Lord, give them both grace. For the unspoken prayer that we heard this hour, Lord, we pray that uh, your hand providentially would touch the hearts of those involved and that there would be a positive outcome and that uh, there would be gratitude, blessings, and Lord, you would be glorified in this. For the McClouds, Lord, George and Sheila, we ask that you heal them, that you raise them up, that they have served you all these years, Lord, and continue to serve, Lord. Give them comfort in their distress as well. And for all others, Lord, who are within the sound of this voice this hour, we pray that your spirit would reside on them, that they be comforted in hearing the message. And Lord, if they be lost, Lord, bring them to you. Draw them to the cross, Lord, that they would have understanding and then a pierced heart and salvation in their lives. As we go about our services, Taylor, we pray for peace amongst us. We pray for comfort. We pray, Lord, for attentive hearts in the hearing of this message. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Our hymn this morning is going to be taken from the Trinity, and that will be uh, number 94. Joe? Joe will come up and lead us.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15. It'll be verses 1 through 10, page 1677 in your pew Bible. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless... You remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can bear not you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I ask that the Lord bless the reading of his word. One hundred in the Trinity, our next hymn, one hundred in the red.
In our text of scripture this morning, it's the Gospel of John chapter 15. We have been looking at this illustration in John 15 of Christ as the vine and God's people as the branches. And we have noted that 11 times in 6 verses, Jesus says that we are to remain in him. This brings the case that we have been examining the incentives Jesus gives to do this. We looked at the negative. If we don't remain in him, we will produce no fruit. And branches which are fruitless are cut off, thrown into the fire of judgment, and thus lost. Verse 2, verse 6. As to positive incentives we have studied today, the promise of answered prayer, remaining in Christ, he's going to hear your prayers. Secondly, assurance of Proven discipleship, because that's what a disciple does. He remains in Christ. Not like Judas that goes off and betrays him. Number three, the comfort of knowing that you are remaining in Christ's love. As we remain in him, his love is manifest to us. And the love to which Christ invites us, we noted, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Verse 9, we spend some time seeing just how the Father loved the Son, for that is the key to understanding how the Son loves us. The Father loved Jesus the Son from eternity. It predates time. In the same way Christ loved his people prior to their very existence. We looked at the scriptures on that. That is intentionally, on purpose, with purpose, he loved us. Which is to say that we were not an afterthought with God. He was indeed thinking of us from before the creation of the world. The Father expressed his love to the Son by disclosing his mind, his plans to him. So too, Jesus takes his disciples into his confidence, and he treats them as friends. He uses actually uses that word, friends, showing to them all that God has shared with him. He said, a servant doesn't know what his master does, but you're, I'm, I'm not calling you or addressing you as a servant. I'm your friend. So what I know, I'm going to share with you. You know, no one in the world has that kind of connection to God except the belief. Well, today we want to study the qualifications for remaining in Christ's love. We are charged to do this, but how do we do this? That's what we want to look at today. And as we come, let's ask the Lord for his wisdom on this. Lord, send your spirit upon us to teach us just what is required of us to remain in your love. We want to do right by you. You have done right by us. In fact, you've been merciful. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that 
we ought to reciprocate this love. You loved us, we need to love you back. And I pray that you will help us to see how to do that. And in so doing, we remain in Christ's love. We pray that you will help us to see our responsibilities. Be with those that are not doing well today, Jared in particular, the McLeods as well, Ron, Lord. There's For a little church, this is a lot of sick people. And we ask, Lord, that you will show yourself strong because the Scripture says that you are the great healer. You're the one that brings healing to our sick bodies. We pray that you will do that for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking today at the qualifications for remaining in Christ's love. Keep in mind that we are considering a number of incentives in this text to remain in Christ. And not all of these incentives have the same appeal equally. Yet every incentive given by Jesus stirs some motivation for us to remain with him and not abandon him as a false disciple would. Secondly, we observe that these incentives are only incentives to those already attached to Christ through the work of His Holy Spirit. They are not incentives to those spurious branches that we have studied. They couldn't care less. The sucker branches, they're not wanting to be attached to Christ because in their Attachment to him is purely selfish and superficial. Nor are these things incentives for the avowed unbeliever. The world scorns at the idea of hell, verse 6. Nor is the world concerned about answered prayer unless they're in a crisis situation. Then they expect God to hear their prayers. I was talking to one guy one time. I couldn't believe what he said. He says, well, that's what God's for. And he was talking, we were talking about praying only in the times of crisis. Well, that's what God's for. Which shows you the attitude of the world towards God. I'm God and you, God, do what I say and what I want. They've got it all mixed up as though God were their servant. Incentives are for proven disciples to keep indeed us active in our love for Christ. Only the spiritually alive can be motivated by spiritual incentives. If carnal incentives were given, think about this. I mean, if Christ promised money to those who would remain loyal to him, or power, or prestige, there would be no end to the people of the world who would flock to him. They'd be lined up all around the corner of the church and out on the road and down Dryden Road. 
But Jesus offers no such flesh-gratifying incentives. Actually, the opposite is the case. To remain in Christ is going to cost the true disciple, his friends of the world, verse 19. It will bring persecution, verse 20. Maybe even death, chapter 16, verse 2. So being a disciple of Christ is a tough hoe on occasion. But, but, there are jewels of which the world is ignorant, things which shall last for time and eternity if we do not abandon the Lord. And the Bible lists those as well. Well, the first qualification is found in verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and remain in his love. So, after telling the disciples to remain in his love, Jesus tells them just, how they can accomplish this. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. So it's clear that obedience is being put as a condition of remaining in Christ's love. And this is not the first time the disciples heard something like this. If you look at John 14 and verse 15, Jesus told them, if you love me, you will obey what I command. In verse 23 of the same chapter, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teachings. Probably pretty obvious though the world hasn't caught on to this one yet. Now true, this is a slightly different slant on our text because Jesus is not saying that he will love the disciples if they obey him, but rather that they will express their love for him through their obedience. But it's a two-way street, if you think about it. The principle is the same. Obedience proves love. And proving love will result in the Father and the Son loving in return and making their home among the believer's heart. Now, one of the disciples on this occasion proved to be rather astute student for some 60 years later he wrote to his own people, and this is what he wrote. 1 John 3, verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. 1 John 5, verse 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. 2 John, verse 6. This is love, that we walk in obedience 
to his commands. And John summarized things this way. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, that's the part of remaining, must walk as Jesus did. 1 John 2, verse 5 and 6. Now, two main truths come out of these scriptures and from our own text before us. Number one, remaining in Christ will require a willing, eager, consistent obedience to his commands and teachings. We read in 1 John 5, verse 3, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And, he goes on to say, his commands are not burdensome. Now, without at this point listing all of the commands of Jesus, John simply pluralizes the word, commands, puts an S on it, thereby showing that we are not at liberty to pick and choose what we will obey. And then John says that Jesus' commands will not be burdensome. Jesus taught the same thing. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Matthew 12, verse 29. The world doesn't know that. But this is a promise made to all who will learn from him, which implies belief and trust on the part of the hearer. But you can be sure that the infidel... His opinion of the commands of Christ is the direct opposite. For him, the teachings, the commands of Christ are very much a burden. He sees no delight whatsoever in following Christ. All is pain, all is drudgery, all is boredom, all is hardship, which makes his heart ache to be free from all these restraints. That's the way he looks at God and his teaching. And this is so because whatever commands Christ gives, regardless of their particular content, are common teachings which call us to holiness of life, to morality, to right living. And the world looks at that and they says, there's no fun in that for me. Why would I want to do that? No, the man of the world gets his jollies from the pleasures of sin. Hebrews 11, verse 25. In the book of Job, Zophar, one of his friends, explained where the wicked get their joy. He writes in Job 20, verse 12, Evil is sweet, in his mouth. What a statement. Think about that. This is a short statement, but it certainly says a lot. 
Speaking of the unbeliever, evil is sweet in his mouth. He goes on. He swallows riches. Verse 15. He stores up treasures. Verse 20. He runs after prosperity. Verse 21. He fills his belly. Verse 23. You see what that's all about. And Job adds his own commentary in the next chapter, chapter 21 and verse 14 and 15. They say to God, the wicked now, they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? Boy, does that say a lot or what? Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Well, apart from God's grace, he gives them exactly what they ask for. Asaph adds in Psalm 73, Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts, comes iniquity, the evil conceits of their mind know no limits, they scoff, they speak with malice. Psalm 73, verse 6 and following. That's our world. That's the people of the world. Jesus himself taught how the rich man of his story took his delight. He's quoting the guy. I'll say to my soul, So, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat and drink and be merry. Luke 12, verse 19. We remember as an example of this, the prodigal son in Luke's gospel squandered his father's inheritance with prostitutes Luke 11, verse 30. James' commentary of the effluent could be written over the lives of many unbelievers. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. James 5, verse 5. Now you have to know that people who value this kind of lifestyle the professing Christians who are not really united to Jesus in any kind of a saving way, for them, the commands and teachings of Christ will gnaw at their tranquility and destroy their peace and joy, and they want none of it. And this is because Christ's commands, whether given directly by him or taught through his apostles, smack at all that men love and call on men to renounce their sin. Oh boy, they're not going to do that. Christ's commands are opposed to men's indulgences in wickedness. Well, they're not going to do that either. Christ's words challenge us to live for God's glory, not our own glory. That really is 
a thorn in their flesh. They're out for their own glory. They're an own advancement. It should not surprise us then to hear Paul describe the unbelieving as, let me read it for you, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 2 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 5. How so? Well, because whatever the form of godliness is, it hasn't changed them into the character of Christ. The power of their godliness isn't evident in any change for the better. There's still the same selfish, egotistical, rebellious people they always were. Nothing has changed since they claim to believe in Christ. And I might say to us all, we need to stop being gullible. Just because somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, or I go to church, or I love the Lord, doesn't make it so. Read their life. Believe me, the world's reading our lives to see if what we say is genuine. There is a sense in which that is how we are to examine those that profess to know Christ as well. Read the life. Is that you this morning? Is your obedience to Christ an outward form of godliness with no power to change your life? Is it true that you live for pleasure rather than for God? You say, well, how can I know? The test is this. Are you obeying the commands and the teachings of Jesus eagerly, willingly, consistently? Not perfectly, because in our sin we're not perfect. But we can be eager about wanting to become more like Christ and willing and consistent with what we do. Is your joy and delight like that of David who said to God, Direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Psalm 119, verse 35. So, Lord, direct me. Take my course of life towards the paths of your commands. If this is not you, then you are yet in your sins and your attachment to Christ is not real. That being the case, you're not abiding in Christ and you have no legitimate claim upon his love. I warn you on the authority of God's word that unless you repent of playing at Christianity, you will perish in your sins. You have God's word on it. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 47, verse 10 and following. You have trusted in your wickedness and you have said, No one sees me. No one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. Oh, they take one of the names of God, that special name. I am Jehovah. 
Boy, they're telling it like they really believe it. I'm my own God. And no one cares about it. No one sees me. He goes on, your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. He's saying, you cannot buy your way out of trouble. He continues, keep on then, keep on then with your magic spells and your many sorceries. Let your astrologers come forward, your stargazers who make predictions Let them save you from what is coming upon you. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. There is not one who can save you. Boy, that's telling it like it is. Putting your hope in mysticism and black magic and so forth forgetting the God who rules. How much more refreshing is the prospect Christ extends to you and to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 12, verse 28 and 29. What a contrast to that which the world offers. There's also a word here for believers that whenever you find the joy of obeying Christ eluding you, it usually is due to one of two things. Either you're slipping back into your own pattern, your old patterns of sin, so that's why you're not feeling so great, or you are attempting to substitute religious activities devoid of true godliness for the genuine commands of Christ. And that accounts for all the religions of the world except Christianity. They're trying to work their way into God's good faith. Jesus said that his yoke was easy, his burden light. John tells us that Jesus' teachings are not burdensome. So then, if you do not find this to be the case, I would suggest you look for sin in your life or look for religious hoax that you're following. You remember that David in his sin with Bathsheba This is what he prayed to God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, verse 12. Forgive me and change me. Here's a prayer, short and sweet, 
but to the point. Forgive me and change me. David had lost his joy and his willingness to obey God's word. But why? He tells us, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Psalm 51, verse 14. Save me from blood guilt, O God, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. It's impossible, brethren, to experience joy from the commands of Christ if your conscience is full of guilt over breaking those commands. Sin muddies our joy, and rightly so. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Hebrews 12, verse 1. I mean, think about it. Is it any wonder that the commands of Christ are so burdensome to us? We're trying to live a holy life and enjoy our sin at the same time, and the two are incompatible. Paul taught the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. Oh, they are in conflict with each other so that they do not do what you want. Galatians 5, verse 17. Wow, the spirit battling with our sinful nature within us. What about this other thing? Substituting religious hoax for real godliness. These things will be a burden to you too. Jesus said to the Pharisees, about them rather, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger. To move those burdens. Matthew 23 verse 4. Luke's account words it this way. You load people down with burdens. They can hardly carry. Luke 11 verse 46. In other words crushing burdens. And what were the heavy burdens which the religious leaders loaded on the shoulders of the people in Jesus' day? Jesus answers, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, verse 89. And then in verse 13, Jesus told them, And you do many things like that. Wow. Isn't that interesting? It isn't the commands of God which are heavy and a burden to bear. It's the traditions and the rules of men.
I don't know if you've been in, ever in a works religion. By works, I mean do this, do that, do this. You can't do that, can't do that, can't go there, can't eat that. Everything is work, work, work. Make no mistake about it. The Pharisees are alive and well among us in our own day. They are. Just watch some of the TV. No, don't. <laughs> You'll be discouraged like me. I was going to say TV preachers. But. Men and women who would seek to have you obey the rules, the regulations of men, and not the commands of Christ. True, these are religious traditions, having a certain form of godliness about them. But as Paul says, they lack any value of restraining sensual indulgence. They have no value in helping you to be victorious over indwelling sin. Colossians 2, verse 23. Isn't that interesting that the rules of men never get around to the right issue? <laughs> Let's deal with sin here. No, no, they don't want to talk about that. They talk about asceticism that's going to help you. Don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there. These are people who burden you with decrees such as, and I'll give them to you right out of the scripture, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 20 or verse 16, judging you in regard to what you eat, what you drink. Or what regard you give to a religious fest festival or a Sabbath day. For as Paul wrote to Timothy, people who order their listeners to abstain from certain foods. 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. Or has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. 1 Timothy 6 verse 4. You know any people like that? I certainly do. And that's their idea of Christianity. Well, you got to obey the rules, and here are some of them. You don't do this, you don't do this, you don't go here, you don't go there, you don't eat that, you don't drink this. Peter tells us that such people, and let me read it for you, promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Paul states the result when Christians are gullible enough to fall for such teachings. He writes, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? This is great. Paul is saying, don't you remember what it was like to be under all those rules and regulations of men and their traditions that have no biblical warrant whatsoever? Do you forget all of that? Do you want to go back to that? When God has called you to freedom, God has called you to grace.
Brethren, there is nothing so enslaving, so debilitating, so demoralizing, and so heavy to bear as the religious rules of men. Men always make a mess of religious duty. This is why those religions which know nothing of God's saving grace in Christ are characterized by works, works, works. You're not doing enough. You're not giving enough. You're not sacrificing enough. Work, work, work. And God will love you. And God will save you. They will work you to death and you still won't be forgiven and cleansed by God. Your conscience will still be guilty and you will die in doubt and horror of the prospect of meeting God. They have forgotten salvation is of the Lord. Can it be, folks, that some of you here today, true believers, genuine branches on the vine, attached to Christ, all that being true, but you're not enjoying obedience to Christ because you're not striving to obey his teachings at all. Instead, you're chained and weighed down with the traditional trappings of fellow men, indeed fellow sinners, whose idea of holiness revolves around doing what is distasteful, unpalatable, self-abusing, difficult. And Paul calls all of that self-made religion. Colossians 2, verse 23. There you have it. Self-made religion. No wonder some have lost their joy in obeying Christ. No wonder they think Christianity is a drag. What they are endeavoring to live by is a drag. The drag of men's traditions. Unload these. Enter into the sweet joy of Christ's command. When men become stricter than God, think about this. When men become stricter than God, Paul says, those people are zealous to win you over, but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you will be zealous for them. In other words, they want to take Paul's students away from him so that they can have their allegiance for their own teachings. Galatians 4, verse 17. And in the next chapter, Galatians 5, and verse 1, Paul calls this a yoke of slavery. When they get you, they got you.
in my church in Pennsylvania, we rented a church from a Seventh-day Adventist group because they don't meet on Sundays. They meet on Saturdays. We thought, oh, wow, this is an ideal situation. We have a church that looked about like this church does. And they're willing to rent it to us, so we have a place to meet. So why don't we do that? Hmm. One little problem. A certain elderly man from the Seventh-day Adventist church showed up every Sunday, sat in the back pew, and in his pockets he had all kinds of tracts on the Seventh Adventist faith. And when we said our amen at the end of our service, he got up, and as people were passing to leave, he's passing out his tracts on Seventh-day Adventist teaching. My elders looked at me, and I looked at them. I said, we cannot tolerate this. Our people are going to be confused what's going on. So we said to the man, we're sorry, but this is our church service, not yours, and you cannot hand out your literature to our people. Just because the building is owned by you, we're paying you to rent the building. And he said, well, if I want to pass things out, I'll pass them out. And I said, no, you won't. So we, the, the deacons and elders physically escorted him out of the building and made it clear we don't want to see this kind of thing going on again. Now, they met on Saturday, so no problem for them. We were renting the building on Sunday. Next Sunday, here they come uh, while we're having our service, very quiet. Here they come in all of their cars. And they park us in so we can't get out of the building to go home. So we basically threatened them to bring the law into the situation if they ever did that again. Because we have a contract with you that we're renting and we're paying for the building And although you own the building, we're renting it. And so that gives us uh, the right to use the building on Sunday, uninhabited uh, by you and what you think you have a right to do, passing out your tracks, parking us in so we can't get home. Well, thankfully, God in his providence showed us a little place that we could purchase was a house. It wasn't a church, but it was a house. And our people said, well, let's buy the house and make it into a church meeting place. We'll just be like the people did in the New Testament with house churches. So that's what we did. We bought a house, converted it downstairs, living room, dining room, into a worship center like this. And the upstairs we used for Sunday school rooms and so on. We were not going to be intimidated by a group of people 
that thought that they they was their right because they owned the building uh, to treat us in that way. But man, it was just unbelievable to us that they would think that, even think that. So we need to be careful about self-made religions that come our way by way of religious people who don't know Christ. If we do that, we will lose our joy in obeying Christ. When men become stricter than God, Paul says those people are zealous to win you over, but it's not for good. Not for good. What they want, I'm reading on, what they want is to alienate you from us, from the apostles, so that we will be zealous for them. They want to take Paul's students away from him so that they can have their allegiance for their own teaching. And Paul calls it in five Galatians 5.1 a yoke of slavery. The traditions and teachings of men can make us as miserable slipping back into a pattern of willful sin. Ditch them both. Ditch them both. Traditions and false teaching. The commands of Christ are easy by comparison. And it's only as we obey his teachings willingly and eagerly that we are assured of remaining in his love. Observe as well that our obedience is to be consistent. We read from John's letter, whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. 1 John 2, verse 6. Again, 2 John, verse 6, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. Whenever we find in Scripture the designation walk, attached to an action or type of conduct, the author is speaking of a way of life as opposed to that which is temporary or occasional. The word walk can be used for living in sin or can be used for living unto God depending on your context. The NIV has done a pretty good job of using the word life or live to relate what is meant by walk. For example, Ephesians 4, 17, New King James says, You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. But the NIV writes, You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thinking. Well, that's more understandable. Again, in Romans 8, verse 4, New King James, Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. NIV, Do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, both of these verses are warning against a life of sin. This is why NIV translates, translates live rather than walk. So then when we read in 1 John 2, verse 6, that God's people are to walk as Jesus did, or in 2 John 6, 
that loving Christ is to walk in obedience to his commands, this is the equivalent of saying that our obedience is to be consistent and persistent in our lives. There are many in our day of whom I would say that they have fits of allegiance. Fits of allegiance. They scurry around for a while attempting to follow Christ, and for a time it's hard to tell if they are genuine disciples or false. We may even be shamed by the magnitude of their unbounding energy, and for a while we look on with envy, and we wish to God that we were as dedicated, that we were as faithful. But soon we may see some cracks in the facade, the first being a slipping back into old sinful patterns because there's no real love for Christ. And so no real heart for obedience to him. Which is the second principle. The second defect is inconsistency. Such people pick and choose and they will obey this, but they won't obey that. And they end up like Pharisees who chose the simple commands of the law like tithing and neglected, Jesus says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, namely justice, mercy, faithfulness. Matthew twenty three twenty three. You've chosen something rather simple to do doesn't require any change of heart. Why not practice justice in your dealings? Mercy, faithfulness. Oh, oh no, that's too hard. Can't do that. It's true, only the spirit-filled life has the strength and the will to be consistent and persistent in its walk with the Lord. And this is why Jesus says in our text, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 5. Nothing, brethren. Nothing. Not even the obedience, which is one of the qualifications for remaining in Christ's love. So we ask, is Jesus saying in our text that if we are not obedient to his teachings, he will not love us anymore? And if he is saying that, then isn't his love for us based on something we do rather than totally on his grace? Well, the love being spoken of here in this regard is the love of relationship, the love that maintains good relations and warm regards between Christ and us. I liken it to the prodigal son and his father, and you remember that story. In that account, the younger son protested his father's rule over him. He demanded, I want my money from my future inheritance. He left home. He went into the far country, away from the land of his upbringing. And there in the far country, he squandered his wealth on riotous living and sexual promiscuity with prostitutes. 
Now, during that long, long separation, the father did not cease to love his son. But the love within the family relationship was strained, to say the least. I mean, there there was no way the father could approve of or support the lifestyle of his rebellious son. Can't do that, son. As a young man, you're flaunting the freedom that you have by indulging in every form of wickedness that you can think of. In other words, he was deliberately sinning against the father's standards of morality and right living, which he had been taught. And in that, the father could not love him or reinforce him or condone him. But, but, when the young man repented of his lifestyle, when he came back home, he found a forgiving, loving father awaiting him. And rightly so. And the relationship of love was restored. Let me say that to you who have a rebellious adult son or daughter, you know what this is like. You love him, you love her dearly, but your relationship is strained because you cannot love how they live their lives. And the judgment they bring upon themselves by their willful sin. So you probably don't get together much. They don't want to be around you, get a lecture. And you don't want to be around them because of the tension. And because something is going to be said or something is going to be done. Which violates your standard of right and wrong. Our Lord is no different in this. If we want the promise of remaining in Christ's love, of having that intimate relationship of brother to brother, then we cannot live our lives in such a way as to be flaunting or rebelling in Christ's face. Whoa! We cannot do things which not only break his commands, but which belittle them and treat them with contempt. If we do this, he will not love us. That is, we will not experience a loving relationship with him. He will remain distant from us and most likely even chasten us through the pruning process to cause us to repent of our ways And come back home. By the way, the scripture says that God disciplines every son that he receives. So one way or the other, we're going to get spanked by God. For me, I want that kind of relationship with Christ built upon and maintained by his love. I want to know that Christ loves me. And I want to sense that he loves me. 
This Jesus is more than my brother. He is my Lord. He holds my future in his hand. He holds your future as well. How utterly absurd it is to be in the family of God and have God angry with you. To be his child, but to act like a brat. Think of that. And be assured, if this is you this morning, the scripture says the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. I'm reading scripture. If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Hebrews 12, verse 6 and following. So if you sin willfully and seemingly get away with it, you are saying something very revealing about your relationship with Christ. You are saying to him and to the world, I am illegitimate. I am no son. I am no daughter at all. Could this be you this morning? You claim to be a Christian, yet you're doing things or contemplating doing things which you know are a clear violation of Christ's teachings. You plan to ignore him. He will not be ignored. You plan to outmaneuver him. He cannot be avoided. You will reap what you sow. God will see to it that your decisions in life will come back to haunt you and condemn you. (laughs) Better by far to obey his commands and, verse 10, remain in his love. What's so hard about that? This is the only way that your joy will be made complete, verse 11. The pleasure of sinful disobedience is fleeting. The consequences of willful sin can last a lifetime and beyond. Obey the Lord. Live long in the shadow of his love. His commands are not as burdensome as what the world and sinful Satan puts upon us. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray your blessing. Give us that willing heart that we need to love you and serve you. To trust that your commands are for our good, that they really are. That you're not just saying that, oh, this is going to be for your good. No, you're not just saying that. These commands really are for our better, for our good. Because you're a loving Lord that loves your children. And doesn't want to see us hurt by the disciplinary rod of your judgment. I pray for any that are struggling with this whole idea of God being their boss. I'm not going to have God boss me. Well, they're already under another boss. His name is Satan. 
The scripture talks about him roaring about like a lion, seeking someone to devour. People are not free. They think they are. But they're hunted down, hunted down by the evil one. And he employs all of his strength to keep them deprived of God's grace. And the scripture says, Jesus said, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Oh, great. So I want to follow this murderer who is out to see me go to hell with him. Out to murder me and my family and my associates. I'm going to acknowledge him as God. Oh, Lord, help us to wake up to the sinful world in which we live and to this one who rules this world by God's permission that the day is coming when judgment will prevail. Save whom you will today. Strengthen us who are weak Christians. Help us to walk in the way of Christ. For we pray in his holy name. Amen. Do we have a closing hymn? What is it? 662 in Trinity. Grace to me, 
It's a beautiful hymn. Thank you for introducing that to us. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and that our God is gracious. He moves heaven and earth to save his people. In fact, the scripture says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. That means we are not an afterthought with God from eternity past when there was no earth, when there was no United States, when there was no Christian church. God wrote our names down in the book of life. And that by His grace, He brings us to life through the power of His Holy Spirit in the day of our living. And we thank you, Lord. For those struggling with the reality of sin, bring them to know Christ today. For those who are weak in their faith, strengthen us. To those that have special needs and special prayer requests, bless them with the prayers they pray. For our sick, we pray, Lord, that you would be with them and strengthen them. May they today find strength in the power of our God. And we ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are dismissed.